But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Sometimes when I write a sermon, I write the body of the sermon first, and then I write the conclusion or the application points at the end of the sermon. And the beginning or the introduction of a sermon is always the hardest part for me to come up with. Sometimes I can think of a funny story or an illustration from literature, but this week it wasn't coming from, to me at all. So I jumped straight into the sermon at the 8 o'clock. But Edward has given us an awesome opportunity to open the Book of Common Prayer to page 280. Christians are a people of theological virtues, faith, hope, and love. Those are the three theological virtues, though sometimes Paul switches the order around so that he says faith, love, and hope. In the baptismal service, on page 280, this is the part right after the person has been baptized or the baby has been baptized, and the priest presents the person to the the congregation, seeing now, dearly beloved brethren, that this child is regenerate and grafted into the body of Christ's church, Let us give thanks unto Almighty God for these benefits, and with one accord make our prayers unto him that this child may lead the rest of his life according to this beginning. Couple things to draw out there. The first is that we're clearly saying that a person who is baptized is given the Holy Spirit. That's what it means to be regenerate. They're made spiritually alive but also they're grafted into the body of Christ's church. That's the family of God. They're made a child. They're adopted by God. And then we pray in hope that the rest of this person's life would be lived just like the beginning. And then if you look down after the Lord's Prayer at the bottom of the page, there's another prayer that very much uh, recapitulates what has just been said about the child. We give thanks to God the Father that it's pleased him to regenerate the child, to give the Holy Ghost, to receive him as thine own child, to incorporate him into the Holy Church. But then note at the top of page 281, we pray that they may also be a partaker of his resurrection so that finally with the residue of thy Holy Church, he may be an inheritor of thine everlasting kingdom through Christ our Lord. Again, we're looking forward. Okay, the baptism is not just about what has happened or what happened, it's about what will happen. Hope is important. And in today's Old Testament reading from Isaiah, the first lesson, we get a concise glimpse into Israel's hope. And this is a hope in the Old Testament. It's a hope that we might say is veiled in shadows. They knew something was wrong, and so they're hoping that it will be rectified, but they don't quite have the clarity of hindsight that we as Christians have today. And so Israel's hope often looks somewhat culturally and historically specific to their context. But in that hope, there's a universal impulse, an impulse that's applicable to all of us, that all of us have felt, that all of us have longed for. The people that walked in darkness have seen a great light and dwell in the land of the shadow of death. Upon them hath the light shined. Now, certainly the prophet Isaiah in his day did not have to look far to see people who were trapped in darkness. Israel, God's chosen nation and the recipient of his holy law, was trapped in the darkness of sin and rebellion. But Israel was always ever just a microcosm 
of humanity's problem. All of us who were born into sin, who have sinned, are stuck in the shadow of death and we're unable to generate any sort of light from our own virtues or our own merits. And this is why the prophet's hope is in a coming future day of deliverance. And it's very interesting because who is it that ushers in that day of deliverance according to Isaiah? Not some mighty warrior, not some powerful king, but a baby. Unto us, a child is born. Unto us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. This is the long-expected Messiah, someone Israel had been looking out for all the way since Genesis chapter 3 after the first sin when God says, your seed will crush the serpent's head. This is the Messiah who will take them out of darkness and into light. And this theme is picked up by St. John. First in his gospel, you can think about the great prologue about the coming of the light into the world. But he culminates that symbolism in the book of Revelation, where he's describing what the new heavens and the new earth and the new Jerusalem will look like. And he says that there, there's no need of the sun, neither of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God did lighten it, and the lamb is the light thereof. And as Christians, we know exactly who that lamb, who that light is. None other than our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I am the light of the world, Jesus says. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. To help us better see this connection between Jesus and Messiah, the promised coming deliverer, The angel in our reading this morning from from St. Matthew reveals two names for the Christ child. The first is Jesus. This is his proper name. And it's a take on the Hebrew name Joshua, which means God saves. Like his Old Testament forebear, who brought the people into the land that God had promised their ancestors, Jesus is the agent of our salvation. He leads us in a spiritual exodus. Thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save the people from their sins. But how does he do this? How does he do this? And the answer is in the second name or the second title, which St. Matthew ties to Isaiah chapter 7, Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. The darkness of sin alienated us from God. Adam and Eve were ejected from the Garden of Eden. Israel was exiled from the land of promise. And we all know a very similar reality after we commit what's known as mortal sins, which are those sins that are so serious that they're spiritually deadening. And we get that distinction from Saint John, chapter, 1 St. John chapter 5, verse 16, where he says there is a sin which is not unto death, and there is a sin which is unto death. When we fall into those serious sins, we experience that alienation from God. But the beauty of Emmanuel is that the light shines in the darkness of our heart and the darkness cannot overcome it. Our salvation is in the fact that God is with us, that God has become one of us, that God has borne our sins all the way to the cross. It's what we sang on Christmas, hail the incarnate deity. Pleased with us in flesh to dwell, Jesus, our Emmanuel. 
And so in our second reading today from Galatians, St. Paul can state with confidence that God's plan has been carried out. When the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law. To help us better understand the mission of God in the world, he uses an analogy. The source of the analogy is a child who's underage. In the absence of the father of the family, the child would not be entrusted with the finances and responsibility of the family estate. Jude can barely figure out how to put his school clothes on. (laughs) We're not going to give him the checkbook. So rather, in the absence of the father, caretakers and stewards would be appointed to ensure that the estate is administered responsibly either until the father's return or the son comes of age. So they might set a date. Okay, when he turns 18, he can then take over the checkbook. That's still a little young, maybe. (laughs) The target of this analogy is to say that humanity was trapped in bondage to the elemental principles. And what Paul means by those principles is probably something like sin and death and the law, those things that keep us constrained until the fullness of time. But now Christ has sent his son. And the result of his coming, the result of his incarnation is sonship for us. Jesus, the only begotten of the Father, has come so that we might become adopted sons and adopted daughters. St. Paul says this just a few verses earlier from our reading this morning in chapter 3 of Galatians. Ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus, or probably the more accurate Greek translation would be by the faithfulness of Christ Jesus. Or in Romans chapter 8, he says, Ye have received the spirit of adoption. We are part of the family of God just like we read in the baptismal service. And the beautiful thing about that reality is that all of us who have been baptized, all of us who have been joined to the body of Christ, now have access to the Father through a relationship that's so close that we can use even a very personal and intimate term of endearment like Abba, Father. The closeness of this relationship changes everything. As Jesus says in the gospel, he asks, What man is there of you whom if his son asked for bread, will he give him a stone? Or if he asked for a fish, will he give him a serpent? If ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your Father, which is in heaven, give good things to them that ask him? I'm going to tell you a story about a time somewhat recently, where I relearned this lesson rather intimately. So I try to go to confession regularly, once a week or or once every couple weeks. And, you know, when you go to confession, you're supposed to list your sins um, in a somewhat detached way. The goal is not to make excuses for your sins. Well, I did this, but I really meant well. But it's also not to beat yourself up and make yourself sound worse than you are either. It's supposed to be detached. For whatever reason this day, Uh, Maybe I was a little down on myself. Under the guise of offering context, I was making myself sound a lot worse. Well, I did this, and I knew better, and I shouldn't have done that, and I was really messed up. I can't believe I did that. And, you know, I'd go to the next one, and I'd do the same thing. I got through, I don't know, four or five items on my list, and the list was longer than four or five items. And the priest stopped me and said, you are rightly naming all of your sins. 
But the, the way that you are framing each one is attacking yourself. You're making yourself sound worse. You're casting yourself in the worst possible light. And he said, the God that I represent to you in the confessional does not condemn you. The God I represent is a loving father who loves you and wants what's best for his children. He ended the confession right there, wouldn't let me finish my list, said, I absolve you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, gave me a couple prayers, and sent me on my way. In other words, and I don't think I was doing this on purpose, but I think this is a common tendency for many of us, maybe especially those of us who were raised evangelical, that without intentionally thinking about it, I was considering confessing to God like going to a courtroom in which I was the prosecuting attorney. I had to make myself sound as worse as possible. Character assassination. But the problem with this is that I was thinking of it all wrong. My mental conception was off. In my self-examination and in the act of confession, I needed to be reminded that God is a loving father who wants what's best for us. That's the purpose of confession, not to beat ourselves up. And so with what remains of this Christmas season, I would encourage you to remember that the birth of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, points all of us to the reality that we are sons and daughters of God. What God declares to us to, for, uh, what God clear, declares to be true about us at baptism, that we're members of his family, that we're incorporated into his body, that we're given the Holy Spirit, Those things are far more important than any of the stories that we tell ourselves about ourselves or that we let other people tell about us. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what anyone says about you. God loves you like a father loves his child because that's exactly who you are. And that means that no matter what your struggle, your sin, or your circumstances are, you can always look and talk to your heavenly Father who gives you good gifts. Depend on him. One of the promises of sonship is that we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, which is an opportunity for us to live beyond the legalism of the law. That only ever ends in dehumanization. No human can actually live under the weight of the law but actually the gift of the Holy Spirit means we can become fully human, following the Christ child, the God-man who took on our humanity so that we might share in his divinity. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, amen.